you know, um, first I just want to thank Andrew um, and Park, the leaders here, um, his wife, Brittany, um, for giving me this opportunity to be able to speak to you guys um, and just bring the word of God to you. And it's interesting because um, I knew Andrew was a real brother from the first time I met him. So I took over as the area director for St. Louis Park Treehouse here. Um, and when I tried to give Andrew a handshake the first time I met him, he's like, give me a hug. <laughs> and for me, that was strange um, because I hadn't had most white guys in my life just want to give me a hug the first time they met him. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, okay, I like this guy because I'm, I'm a hugger too. So, and I, I, I'm the kind of guy where like when I leave with you, a lot of times I'll be like, hey, I love you. You know, and a lot of times people will look at me like, and I'll be like, well, I do. Like, we're supposed to love each other, right? So uh, when he gave me a hug, I was like, okay, there's something to this guy. And we've just, what was this, March of, or February or March of 2019. And we've just been friends ever since, um, meeting on a consistent basis, just having conversations, um, talking about the Lord, talking about church stuff, um, family stuff, um, and just, just doing life together. Um, and that's been a true blessing. Um, so I truly do give a special thank you to him, um, his wife, for having me, the leaders here, the boards, um, everybody. It's a blessing to be here. Um, and I just got to give a shout out to my brother in Christ here, Carl, who came today. Um, he came to show his support. He's a member of our church. Um, me and him go back some years. Um, very good brother, very strong brother in the faith. Um, and it's a blessing to just have him here and support as well. Um, and today... Uh, I just want to talk, I just want to be real. Can I be real with you guys? Can I be real with, with PCC? Amen. So I just want to be real with you guys. Um, and I know that we know what real love is. Real love is Jesus on the cross. Like God gave his son, he loved the world, he got on that cross for us for our sins. But I wanted to talk about also the real love between us as people and as believers, um, I don't think it's a question if God loves us. But I think sometimes um, for all of us, no matter what color or culture or where we come from, there's a question sometimes on if we're actually loving each other. Um, and I think that that really shows in the world when we dig into some of these scriptures here, we'll actually see um, why sometimes that can come into question. Um, so let's dig straight into it. The scriptures we're gonna use today are gonna be John chapter 13. So we'll be in John 13. We'll do a few verses, jump down, do a few more, jump down. And it'll all come together. So I'll start in, chap in chapter 13, verses one through five in the Gospel of John. It's a, and I'm reading from the NLT, just for you, so you can know if it's a little bit different, it's because I'm in the NLT. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon, excuse me, Iscariot, to, be, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured it into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now I'm going to jump down 
Still in chapter 13, I'm going to go verses 12 through 16. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now I'm going to jump down to verses 33 through 35. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm going, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I know that that's a lot of scripture. Um, and maybe some of us are used to three to five verses or two to three verses. But I really wanted to hit this home on this scripture because the theme of today is real love and talking about how we really are supposed to love each other. And a lot of times when we read our Bible, um, we see the sections and the headers and the chapters. And so we start to break the Bible down as if when Jesus spoke or, or when Paul was writing or, or, or something, that when it stopped here at chapter 14, that we're moving on to a new part or they're moving on to a new segment. And the reality is when the Bible was originally written in its original text, that it was not broken down like that. So to bring that into context, and I, and, I, and I really want us to understand that because when we're literally reading John 13, 1, all the way through 35, 36, 37, 38, when we're reading that, I want us to understand we can legitimately read that as if it's just one continuous conversation between Jesus and his disciples as he's processing through everything. And I know when I first started reading the Bible, I would stop at this new header right here and be like, oh, okay. And I would always wonder, did they go somewhere else? Are they at a different person's home? Are, are, are they at another mountain? Like, what's happening here? And I really had to study and, and dig deep into the Bible. And, and once God revealed to me that, no, my word is just a continuous flowing thing from beginning to end. Like, God's word just flows all the way through. And when we read those different verses, it's just Jesus speaking and his word is just flowing all the way through in the lessons he's giving his disciples about real love and how we're really supposed to love each other. So um, when we learn how the Bible was actually broken down in the original text in the Old Testament, it wasn't broken down into chapter to chapter. They were solid from beginning to end. It wasn't broken down into chapter divisions until 1227 AD by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So we're talking over a thousand years after the original text is when the archbishop finally decided to break it down. And then the divisions, those weren't in there in the beginning as well. The first was done by the Jewish rabbi for the Old Testament named Nathan in 1444 AD, and then the New Testament in 1555 by Robert Estienne. And so this is why I tell you the Bible, it just flows. It flows all the way through. God is just flowing his word to us, and he's trying to get across to us how we're really supposed to love each other in this text that we just read. 
So the headings, even the editorial headings that we're looking at in the Bible that are over the context of Scripture we're reading, those are added in by each publisher. Paul did not put those headings in when he wrote his epistles. Jesus or none of them, Moses, nobody put those headings in when we wrote in these epistles, when these letters, when this history, when this story was being told. Those are done by the editors of whichever Bible we choose to read. And that's very important in understanding that because it's essential to our faith to understand how God just speaks to us and how his word just flows through us and it flows in us. Now, I want to get somewhere on the text that we're discussing. I just wanted to break that down because I didn't want to lose anybody. Amen. So it's, my first point is how humble are we? And what's interesting to me here is that Jesus, immediately after having the thoughts of what to come and the death that he was about to have and the debt he knew he was about to pay, he didn't get in his feelings and he didn't get sad. He didn't get upset at this moment. He took this moment of knowing that imminent death was coming and he used it as a place and a space to teach his disciples something. Most of us, if we're facing imminent death or we're facing a moment of despair and we know that we, we can't get away from this, we may not use that moment to glorify God. We may not use that moment to teach people something about the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus did here when he decides that he's going to wash their feet, knowing his death is coming, it had a profound effect on them because he showed us the humbleness in washing another person's feet. He showed us that this was something that was to be considered to be done by the humblest of servants. And it was considered to be a real menial task. And I feel this is very interesting because in the book of Luke, chapter 22, 22 to 27, Luke records that they were actually arguing about who's going to be the greatest of them at this same moment. So in the moment that the disciples are arguing who's going to be greater, Lord, is it me, is it me, is it me, is it me? Jesus is like, I'm about to die. All right, let's get this straight. I'm about to die. You're worried about who's greater, but I'm going to put my robe around my waist and I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to wash your feet. He's giving them an understanding. It doesn't matter who's greater. It truly matters who's less. We, in this, in this text, in this moment, we have a king who is the king of kings and the lord of lords who has ever met a homeless king. The only homeless king you've ever met is Jesus. The only homeless king you've ever met is Jesus. Foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but yet the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He jumped house to house, place to place, sleeping in the mountains, sleeping in the valleys, wherever he could go. When Jesus' ministry started, I don't know anywhere in the Bible where he just had a permanent residence. We had a king who was homeless. We had a king who washed feet. So this Jesus who we just worshiped and we sung songs of praise and glory to him and the things that we, everything we do is to glorify God, not ourselves. So this Jesus that we're doing to glorify God and not ourselves, this actual Jesus, we're glorifying a homeless person. 
We're actually glorifying someone who wants to serve us and who wants to show us this is how you really need to treat people. That's who we're glorifying. We're not glorifying a Jesus who says, I sit on the throne at all times, and because I'm on the throne, worship me. He wants us to worship him, so I'm not taking away the worship, but he's giving us an example of what worship can actually be. He's giving us an example of how we come to each other. Who's humble enough to wash somebody's stinky feet? Who's humble enough to wash somebody's stinky feet who's been walking in sandals in the dirt all day and probably hasn't washed them for a few days? And to do, I like that. The little kid, you got it, buddy. <laughs> he got it. Listen, the little children got it, don't they? He's too young to be full of pride. He's too young to understand racial differences. He's too young to understand politics. He's too young to understand financial discrepancies. He's too young to understand the stock market. All he knows is Jesus. He's too young. Suffer not the little children to come unto me. He's too young. Who are we supposed to be like? So we have Jesus here teaching them a lesson by action. Instead of him giving them another parable, another story, he's teaching them a lesson by action. If you ever look at your Bible in the New Testament, the most profound lessons that Jesus mainly ever taught was action. We'll get there later. But remember that point, some of the most profound things. So now I want you to really think about this. He's truly showing them what it is to be about love. He's setting an example for them so that they can carry it forward. Could you imagine if Jesus told all of them, let's do the kings of today. The kings of today do this, wash my feet. Who's ever seen the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? <laughs> okay, do you remember in the beginning when everybody was washing him in the bathtub, they were dressing him, doing his hair, doing it. The, the kings of today, they get pedicures and manicures. The, the leaders of today, they have people come and serve them and give them all of the service in the world. And Jesus is setting a different example. Just imagine if Jesus told his disciples, all of you must wash my feet. All of you must go and wash my clothes. All of you must bring me my food. All of you must serve me because I'm king. What kind of disciples would we have had? What kind of apostles would we have had? They were already prideful because they were arguing who was going to be the greatest. He would have only fed into their pride. He would have only fed into who they actually wanted to be, which was prideful men, which was prideful people who wanted to be greater than the person that was next to them. And Jesus is trying to give them this understanding that to be greater than the person next to you, you have to actually be less than them. To be greater than the person next to you, you have to be willing to wash those stinky feet. These simple principles, sim very simple principles in biblical teachings Jesus gives us, if we would just use them in our lives, if we would use them in our marriage, if we would use them in our friendships, if we would use them at our jobs, if we would use them with people who get on our nerves on a daily basis, the humbleness. I have a bishop who's been a mentor of mine. I always say, Bishop, how do you? He says, son, you have to kill them with love. He said, you can't kill uh, any, any sort of evil, any sort of spiritual dissension, any person who has a beef with you, or anger with you, you won't kill it by being angry. He said, son, you have to kill it with love. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He killed his son so you can have forgiveness of sins through love. It wasn't through anger. I'm not, but God's wrath was there, the propitiation, right? His wrath was there because his wrath was there. God said, I am angry, but I need to make a way out for them. 
And the way out that I give to them for their sin is through love. And this is what God did. And Jesus is now giving them a true and great example of what they actually need to be doing, how they actually need to be physically doing these things that he's showing them. The stories that Jesus does of his physical impact, they're great. The healings, the raising of the dead, all of the different things were physical things. Think about this. The Bible says that they wanted to kill Lazarus because Jesus raised him from the dead. John chapter 12. They wanted to kill Lazarus because the action of Jesus raising him from the dead because they said when he raised Lazarus from the dead, they started following Jesus. People started coming. Oh, my God, he just raised somebody from the dead. So now they want to know, what is this guy about? The action things that Jesus did brought people to follow behind him. Brought people to say, hey, who is this guy and what is he truly and really about? The kingdom of God is not in word but in power. Amen. So now, because they wanted to kill Lazarus because of the actions Jesus did for rising him from the dead, Jesus is now on his feet, on his knees, and he's washing their feet. All right? He's washing their feet. The example of the foot washing is one of humility. It's essential in understanding what we are truly here as Christians to do. We are truly here to be humble. Pride cometh before the fall. Not humbleness cometh before the fall. Pride cometh before the fall. The opposite of pride is humility. To be humble and to love one another. It's so good to know that loving one another even includes our enemies. Even includes those we disagree with vehemently. Those who every time they speak on TV, those who every time we see a social media post, those who every time they open their mouth, those who every time they stand on the corner with signs in celebration or in anger, those who every time we see them, the Bible says a humbleness should come over us for them. Not a pridefulness, not an anger, not a frustration. A humbleness should come over those. A humbleness, a humbleness. It's so good to know that loving one another includes our enemies because, look, verse 2 says the devil entered Judas. 13, chapter 13, verse 2, the devil entered Judas. But, verse 11 says, Jesus knew that someone within them would betray him. But verse 12, after he knows who will betray him, verse 12 says he washed their feet. So Jesus, knowing Judas is going to betray him, washed his feet that's the bible that's not pastor jordan pastor andrew that's the bible that's why i asked you who's willing to wash somebody's feet today i'm not going to really ask you to wash feet at the end i'm not going to do that but i'm asking you a question who's really willing to wash the feet of someone they disagree with who's really willing Who's really willing to take into humility the thought processes of somebody else, even if we don't agree? Think about this. This is my second point. Our opinions blind us to God's will. Our opinions blind us to God's will. And that point is so huge in our country and our world today because we are so polarized and politicized that we won't wash each other's feet. The donkey won't wash the elephant's feet. The elephant won't wash the donkey's feet. 
in our churches, both the elephant and the donkey have their biblical reasons as to why. Go to any church, whether it's an elephant or a donkey, they have their reasons to why. Forgetting that whatever reasons we use in the Bible to separate us are the real reasons why we should be washing each other's feet. Listen, if Jesus can wash the feet of a man who he knew was going to betray him unto death, I can wash somebody's feet who doesn't agree with me, who has a different opinion than me. But this is why I told you our opinions blind us to God's will because we become so opinionated and we become so factual on what we believe is truth that what happens is our pride starts to build up in us and it starts to make us believe that you know what no there's no way I spent fifty thousand dollars on school I've been learning this for 30 years I put all of my life behind this there's no way that there could be another opinion besides mine so now our opinions blind us from God's will what if God's will I've sat and talked to KKK members I never would have thought in my life that God's will for me was to talk to a member of the KKK and to really have a long conversation with him and become a friend. I, I never would have thought that in my life. But that was God's will for me, and that man received salvation. And when I met him, he was thinking about this Jesus thing, and he was leaning towards it, and he wanted to have something to do with it, but he wasn't fully sure. He knew Jesus was real, but check this out. He only knew the church because the KKK used to meet in the church. So that's what he associated the church with. So what I'm saying to you is this. If my opinion of how I feel about the organization, if my opinion would have overruled God's will, we would have never had a conversation for him to truly understand who Jesus is. Our opinions blind us of the will of God. Think about it. Our opinion says stay away from our enemies. Don't serve them. Don't feed them. Don't break bread with them. I love them. I truly do. But I won't eat with them. This is what our opinions say. Jesus says the exact opposite. We're going to get there. Jesus didn't love like that. Jesus' love was not opinion-based. Think about it. God's opinion of us was that we were sinners. So if God's love for us was opinion-based, none of us would have salvation. Because we were sinners doomed to death. So if it was just based off of the opinion of who we are in our flesh, all of us would be dead. None of us would have life in Jesus Christ because it's just an opinion. Oh, they're sinners. They're terrible. Yep. Let them die. God's love is an opinion-based. His love is action-based. His love is sending his son. His love is telling us our opinions don't breed love. They breed a world of trouble. What I want us to take home from this example it, is it doesn't matter who we are, where we're at in our faith walk, what we're believing in. The reality is this. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the lion of Judah. He is the only animal we should be following. He is the only animal we should be believing in. He is the lion of Judah. Hallelujah. So he says in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. If I, so I, I, I pose this question, if Jesus is washing feet, if Jesus is dying for us, if Jesus is setting this great example, um, there was this famous thing a few years ago or whatever, maybe it's still famous, it was WWJD, does anybody remember that? What would Jesus do? Some people agree, some people disagree. I'm not here to debate WWJD. I'm here to simply say this. If Jesus is showing an example of what Lord and Master should do, 
If Jesus is showing an example that if I can wash your feet and I'm your Lord and master, that you should wash each other's, what example are we setting when we go out into the world? That's something to really think about. Amen. He says, do as I have done to you. This is what Jesus says. And I want to emphasize this part because whatever division that we see today, even through the midst of that division, we should be willing to wash each other's feet. I saw people celebrating a victory yesterday, and, uh, and, and people were so happy. And I was like, oh, great. Um, other people were sad. My main thing that came to my mind was who's going to wash each other's feet? Who's going to be willing to go up to the other person who's sad that they lost or who's sad that they lost and going to go up to the person that won and is going to say, hey, I'm just, I want to be humble enough. Can I wash your feet? Or, hey, I want to be humble enough. Like, hey, um, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Hey, you know, even though we have disagreements um, and, and everything, I just want to know, like, hey, I love you. Humbleness is a sign of love. Who's married in here? Thank God. Oh, Andrew, you're doing a good job. You got a whole married church. <laughs> but humbleness is a sign of love. Who's had to be humble in their marriage? Fellas, who's had to just, like, eat it sometimes? Like, my wife will be here later, so I have to say this now. <laughs> but who's just ate it sometimes? Like, yep, all right. And now wives, who's just ate it sometimes? Humbleness is a sign of love. We, we, we become humble with the ones we love because we want to keep them, because we want them to be happy, because we want to serve them properly, we want to be there for them. Humbleness is a true sign of love. That's why pride comes before the fall. Another question. Who's had marital problems? I have. I'll be the first one to raise my hand. You don't have to if you don't want to. You don't have to put your business out there. But I know in most of my marital problems, there was always a pride issue somewhere lingering. Either one of us felt we were right, the other one was wrong, or we were refusing to, we were refusing to hear the other one's opinion because our opinion, it was right, it's my opinion now. Oh, but I read this and I read that, so I have to be right. I watched this video, I have to be right. And I just had to realize that that's just a pride thing. Pride steers us away. It steers us away from, from, from God's will. It steers us away from love. That's why pride cometh before destruction. Now listen. He says, the servant is not greater than the master, and the messenger is not greater than the one who sends the message. I don't know about you, but I feel like society today, and I'm not even just picking on the church. I want to be honest. I'm picking on society in general. Society today, we've forgotten this message. Society has now become the exact opposite of the example that Jesus gives us here in the text. We've become a society where if we disagree, we can't coexist. Now, I'm, we're, ooh, we're about to get somewhere. If we disagree, we can't coexist. <laughs> but the crazy thing about that is that's the exact opposite of the Jesus culture. The culture that Jesus created was a bunch of people who should have disagreed, which is probably why they was arguing about who was greater. But he was able to make them coexist. Listen to this. Jesus brought a tax collector and a zealot together. I'm going to get there. Two men with two different opinions of government. He ate at the house of Simon the leper. Who eats at a leper's house back in these days? He ate at sinners' homes. And check this out. Simon the leper's house is where Mary anointed his feet. At the leper's house, Jesus was anointed. Not at the temple, not at the Pharisee's house, 
at the leper's house, Jesus was anointed. He took people who were considered less than and made them people we still talk about to this day. What I want to break down in this text right now is the tax collector and the zealot. He brought them together. Think about this. So John MacArthur in the book, 12 Ordinary Men, writes this. Their political backgrounds were different too. Matthew, the former tax collector, who was sometimes called Levi, was considered one of the most despicable people in Israel before Jesus called him, end quote. And he goes on to flush out a little bit more what Matthew did. I'm just not quoting it now. Matthew had a job with the Roman government to collect or exhort taxes from his own people. This tax money went to pay for the Roman army, so they continued the occupation of Israel. So he was collecting money from his own people to give to a government so they could occupy his people. He was not that popular. <laughs> it's no different if the IRS shows up at your door. They're probably not going to be that popular. So listen to this. MacArthur says again, the lesser of the two Simons, on the other hand, is called a zealot. Zealots were an outlaw political party who took their hatred of Rome to an extreme and conspired to overthrow the Roman rule. Many of them were violent outlaws. Since they did not have an army, they used sabotage and assassination to advance their political agenda. They were, in fact, terrorists. One faction of the zealots was the Sicarii, literally dagger men because of the small curved blades they carried. They concealed those weapons beneath their robes and used them to dispatch people they perceived as political enemies, people like tax collectors. So the fact that Matthew, a former tax collector, and Simon, a former zealot, could be a part of the same company of 12 apostles is a testimony to the life-changing power and grace of Jesus Christ, end quote. The fact that Jesus could take these two totally different opinions, these totally different people who believed in two totally different things, and bring them into the fold of his original 12, the fact that he could do that shows us the power that Jesus Christ has when we apply the grace that God has given us. The fact that he could do that shows us the power that happens in humility. The power that happens through love. Just the simple fact that he could do this. So the question that now happens is this. Where are we in our processing of the sermon of real love? Where are we? Do we leave churches because they disagree with us, because their views don't align with us? Do we leave friendships because their views don't align with us? These are real questions the church must face. And for me, this seems so familiar for today because if Jesus can bring these two in an inner circle and have them put aside their differences and political agendas and thoughts, their ideas of what should be happening, and even in forgiving each other possibly, I believe it's true that we can do it today. We can do it every day. The example of the foot washing. I'm not telling you the foot washing is mandatory in church. I'm telling you it's a service in humility. Because no matter what our differences are, there is a humbling power. There ha I mean, let's really be honest. There has to be a humbling power over us when we're willing to wash somebody else's feet. Let's just be honest. Some of us won't rub our wife's feet when she's pregnant. Some of us won't rub her feet just when she's had a long day. So to wash somebody's feet 
that's been in the dust and the dirt, and they're probably filthy, and they probably stink. There's a humbleness that comes through that. Jesus likes to break down barriers. We call Jesus a chain breaker in, in, in our church. I don't know if you guys call Jesus, but Tasha Cobb, chain breaker. We call him a chain breaker. Chain breaking is, we say he's breaking sin, he's breaking bondage. Well, some of us are in bondage of a lack of humility. Some of us are in bondage of being so prideful in our own opinions and who we are and in what we believe in that we're so, we're so caught in bondage that we can't be humble enough to just try to understand. But I look at Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus came here to sympathize with us. So he came here in a, in, in a place of humility, in a place of love. Oh, hallelujah. If Jesus did not have the humbleness to come here and to die, where would we be? But our pride, we become so puffed up. We become so arrogant. I make six figures. I'm a CEO. I, 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 I was the lead cheerleader. I was prom king. I was prom queen. I have a master's degree. Oh, I've done this and I've been here and I've done that. I've traveled the world. I've been preaching for 30 years. Oh, so nobody can teach me anything. But the problem is we're learning until we die. Because none of us are perfect, because God is always constantly showing us something new, but our opinions blind us of God's will, and then our opinions end up making us become someone who is too prideful to really see that there may be something else out there for us. Oh, hallelujah. I preached at my church last week on how some of this stuff that we're talking about right now, this, the, the, the Bible talks about how it can even actually block us of our spiritual blessings. I'm not talking about your material blessings of a house and a car and, and of going on trips. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your spiritual blessings of what God can do with you in the kingdom of God. How does God work through a prideful heart? He has to break the prideful heart down. The heart of stone has to become a heart of flesh, and then he can use it because the prideful heart does exactly what happened in Genesis. It does exactly what happened in the book of Acts in chapter 8. It, a prideful heart becomes a heart that now wants to be God. A prideful heart becomes a heart that doesn't want to listen to God. God needs us to be humble just so we'll listen to him. A lack of humility even keeps us from wanting to listen to God. How many of us, and I'll, I'll raise my hand because it happened to me some years ago. How many of us are so stuck in our opinion that we know God is pushing us in another direction? Our pastor is even talking to us. We say we respect our pastors and we love our pastors and we listen to them preach and we listen to them teach, but we judge everything they say. We're trying to pay attention to what they're saying to see if they're correct or not. Is it doctrinal or is it not? Our pride, our pride, our pride gets in the way. How many of us does our pride get in the way to where we know God is pushing us into an area and even though we're uncomfortable, but he's pushing us and he's pushing us and he's trying to bring us into this area. Remember, God sees what's on the other side. He's trying to push us into this other area, but our pride is pushing back. It's not God pushing away from you. It's our pride pushing back away from God because in this moment, God is not aligning with our opinion. When did we become God? When did our opinion become more than God? God doesn't align with my opinions, nope. Don't want to have nothing to do with it. How many of us have taken scriptures of the Bible and used them to back our opinions, but eliminating others? Let's talk Bible. I love God. I love Jesus. Think about this. 
God truly and wholeheartedly put all our sins aside, all of our filth, all of our gunk, all of our junk, he literally washed it away. He literally allowed the crimson blood of Jesus to take us from being crimson to being as pure as the snow. Literally. He says it in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. He says it. He wants us to be pure. He's taken all of that gunk and the junk, and he's thrown it to the side in Jesus. Which means pride, which means all of our own personal opinions about what we think is right. God's opinion is the only opinion that matters. If my opinion doesn't come from God, it's just me. How many times did Peter have an opinion? He told Jesus, oh, no, Lord, I won't let anybody kill you. Oh, no, you won't go to your death. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. How many opinions did Peter have about what Jesus should actually be doing? And how many times did Jesus have to correct him? Because it was the Father's will. Peter, you may not want me to die, but you don't understand that if I don't die, you'll never be able to live. So keep your opinion over here and let me place God opinions there. Last point. Love is action. It's not lip service. This is a breakdown of 33 through 35, and this is really deep. Um, Because I used to suffer from this when I became an early Christian because the Bible says we have to love everyone. So I really suffered from this bad, and it wasn't until I was taught, son, you have to truly love people. It wasn't until I got around people who actually displayed God's love everywhere they went that I actually understood this statement. This is deep, and I'll be done after this, I promise. I'll read a little bit from Tim Keller. I love Tim Keller, and I'll be done. Let's think about this here. Let's, I want you to really take this into consideration. People will tell you, or we will tell people, how much God loves them. But God loving people isn't the question. It's good to tell people God loves them because people need to hear it because not everybody knows that. So I'll tell you today, God loves you. He loves all of us. Not in denial of that. But the real question is, does the person telling everyone God loves them actually love them? That's the true question. Am I telling people, hey, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, God loves you, but do I love them? The question, we don't question God's love. We love because God first loved us. So we never can question God's love. But I wonder sometimes if God questions my love. I wonder sometimes if God says, thank you, my servant. Thank you for telling them that I love them because they needed to hear that. They were feeling in despair today and down and out. Thank you, but my servant, I'm not sure if you love them. So telling people God loves them is great. But then how do we place that love in ourselves so that we can love them? As a Christian, when I tell people God loves you, it's great and it's true. But we have to actually love people. Jesus said this. Now, Jesus said this. The words aren't read. Love as I have loved you. Love as I have loved you. Then he said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, I tell people God loves them. But if I don't actually love you, I'm not proving to the world I'm God's disciple. Jesus said this. This is not me. I'm reading the Bible. Your love for one another. So who's a Christian in here? Who's been saved? Who, who believes in Jesus? Who, who's Holy Spirit? Who's, who's a Jesus freak in this place? The Bible says your love for one another will prove to the world 
that you are my disciples. Not your anger or your hatred. Check this out. Not your opinions. Not your pride. Check this out. Not your lust. Not your deceit. Not your frustration. None of that proves you're a disciple of Jesus. What I really love about this is he even doesn't even say the power of God in you doesn't even prove you're a disciple. He says your love for one another, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How are we loving each other? That's how we're going to prove to the world if we're disciples of Jesus Christ or not. Not by, our, not, not, not by our actions of, of just, oh, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to give this money to this homeless shelter. I'm going to place this food over here. How are we loving people? Our love for one another. Love is an action. It led to the death of Jesus. Love is an action. Are we meaning love or is every time I do something in, in, in community service, is it just because it makes me feel better and, and it justifies my heart? Love has to be behind everything that we do. Love was behind everything that God did. Love. God is love. There's no humbleness if God is in love. There's no patience if God is in love. There's no grace if God is in love. There's no mercy if God is in love. There's no forgiveness if God is in love. There's none of this if God is in love. That's why the Bible says God is love. Without love... Paul lists the attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, we don't have patience. Without love, we don't have all of the things that we need to be able to have to prove we are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. God's love for us does not prove we are a true disciple of Jesus. Our love for others proves we are true disciples of Jesus. And we've had it backwards for so long. When I came to the faith, all I heard was, God loves you, man. God really loves you. But I was never told I was loved by the people telling me God loves them. How many of us do that? Do we tell the people that God loves them that we love them too? Or do we just tell them that God loves you? As if God's love isn't working through you. And I always wondered, well, if God loves me and we're supposed to love everybody, how come this person never says they love me? But they feel free to tell me how much God does. Oh, hallelujah. We teach our, this is why I love the children. We teach our children, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. You guys keep singing that. And what I love about that is this. The Bible also says for us to love. So not only does it tell us Jesus loves us, it tells us to love. So if that song is real, let's put the whole Bible into context. Amen. John 3, 16. For God, for this is how God loved the world. He gave 
his only, one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to say this and I'll be done. Key word is gave. And just to let you know, if you ever come to my church, you'll probably hear I'm going to say this and I'll be done at least three times before I'm actually done. Because <laughs> I mean to be done. <laughs> um, but the key word here in this text is gave. Gave being used in this context is considered an action verb. So love is action, not lip service. So in this context, think about it. He gave. There was an action. He gave his only son. And what was the giving? The death. The action was death. The action was being beaten. The action was being bruised. The action The action was being spat upon. The action was being ridiculed about who he really was when he could have just stopped the whole thing right there. He could have stopped everything. When Peter cut off Malchus's ear, he put the ear back on him. He could have stopped everything. But the action was in the death. The action was in the burial. The action was in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love is action. It's not lip service and I promise you I'm going to say this and be done I'm going to read something this is real now this is real (laughs) we love each other people know we're Jesus disciples by how we love each other I'm going to read you something page 66 the reason for God Timothy Keller it says When Martin Luther King Jr. confronted racism in the white church in the South, he did not call on Southern churches to become more secular. Read his sermons in the letter from the Birmingham jail and see how he argued. He invoked God's moral law and the scripture. He called white Christians, now this is, this is the key point, to be more true to their own beliefs and to realize what the Bible really teaches. He did not say truth is relative. And everyone is free to determine what is right or wrong for them. If everything is relative, there would have been no incentive for white people in the South to give up their power. Rather, Dr. King invoked the prophet Amos who said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Amos 5.24. The greatest champion of justice in our era knew the antidote to racism was not less Christianity, but a deeper and truer Christianity. Now, I wanted to read that not because I want to start a church debate on race and all of that. I wanted to read that for two key points. I don't care what church it is. I don't care what organization it is, what party it is. I wanted to read that for two points. Christians are to be called to be more true to their own beliefs and to realize what the Bible teaches. And the antidote to racism or all of our problems is for us as Christians to build a deeper and a truer Christianity. So we're not just talking race here. We're talking everything. The antidote to all of these issues is for us to go deeper and truer in our faith in God, in our belief and in our actions and what the Bible talks about. That's the antidote. He says to be more true to their own beliefs and to realize what the Bible really teaches. That's the antidote. The world will say, 
Christianity doesn't have the answer because it's done so much damage to the world. But I love Timothy Keller's argument in this book, and his argument is this. Yes, Christianity has done a lot of damage. It's done a lot of wrong. We're not arguing that point. But Christianity is the only other book also that has all of the perfect ways to fix it. That's why we have to practice humbleness. This is why we have to love. This is why we have to know what real love is. And this is why to prove we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to love the way God loved us. And then people will know. And then people will know. God bless you, Park Church. Park Community Church, I should say. Thank you for your time. I love you guys. In Jesus' name. Amen.